Hey everybody, it's Moshe Wanunu. Welcome back to the Mo News Podcast. I'm really excited about the conversation we have for you today on the state of the Republican Party post midterms uh, and with former President Trump's recent announcement that he is running again. After the red wave, that wasn't. The Republicans now have a very slim majority in the U.S. House and are coming off their second straight election failure to take control of the U.S. Senate. That all comes as a number of top Republicans, including former President Trump, are now looking at running for president. And as party leaders figure out what they will do with that new majority in the House, you already have former President Trump and a number of other top Republicans announcing their runs for president. So what is the state of the party? What happens next? I'm lucky today to be speaking to two leading conservative thinkers, Jonah Goldberg and Sarah Isker of The Dispatch. It is a newsletter turned media company. It launched a few years ago and is one of my go-to places for fact-based conservative media coverage. Sarah and Jonah each have great newsletters and podcasts, which I will link to in the show notes. Jonah's podcast is called The Remnant. Sarah's is called Advisory Opinions. In today's conversation, we're talking 2022 what went wrong, 2024, what's ahead, Trump, DeSantis, as well as who they think are some lesser talked about names for president who could have a big impact in the next couple of years. A reminder that it's still very early on here. We will also talk about the state of conservative media and what the mainstream media still gets wrong about Trump. A reminder before we get started here to follow or subscribe to this podcast and leave us a review on the app you're listening to us on right now. It'll ensure you don't miss a single episode and a review will help us continue to grow this show. I'm thankful for all of you as we approach Thanksgiving here and I'm so grateful for everyone's support. With that, let's get started with today's conversation. I'm so fortunate today to be joined by uh, two of the smartest uh, thinkers out there on politics, uh, on conservatism, Jonah Goldberg, Sarah Isker of The Dispatch. Uh, They do an incredible job over The Dispatch with a number of newsletters and great podcasts. Jonah has uh, his Remnant uh, podcast, as well as his G-Fall newsletter. Sarah, part of the Advisory Opinions podcast and the Sweep newsletter. I'll include the links to all of these in the show notes. Jonah, Sarah, thank you so much for joining me to help digest what has been a pretty eventful couple weeks in politics. I wanted to start by giving listeners an introduction to The Dispatch. Jonah, what is The Dispatch? What is the origin story? Uh, And tell folks about your approach to the news. So Steve Hayes and I um, were uh, the co-founders of The Dispatch. Steve was the final editor of The Weekly Standard. I was a longtime senior editor and uh, founder of National Review Online at National Review. I was at National Review for 20 years. We started The Dispatch because in part we wanted to model behavior that we thought was sorely lacking um, in American journalism, particularly on the right of center. Um, And so we um, wanted to put a real emphasis on on reporting, on facts, on not carrying water for, um, for either party. I mean, we don't really shy away from the fact that we are conservatives, but, um, we think it's really important for conservatism to be able to call the BS of your own side sometimes. Um, and so uh, our approach to this is one of our cardinal rules is don't waste our readers' time. Um, we kind of think that the important, you know, one of the important services we provide is that we allow people to sort of feel like they got as caught up on the news as they feel they need to be, and then they can go about their day. Um, and uh, we, our main products are mostly newsletters. We were founded on Substack. We left Substack because we outgrew it um, a few months ago. 
Um, we still love the guys at Substack, but um, um, we just wanted to do bigger things than we could in that environment. And um, and so it's a podcast company. It's a newsletter company. It's um, it's also just a straight up old fashioned um, journalistic enterprise with reporting and fact checking and all of that. Steve handles most of the the strict news reportorial side. I was never a reporter. I mean, I did some reporting, but basically it was, let's put Jonah someplace weird and have him write funny things about it. Mm. Um, but Steve was a real reporter and is a real reporter. And so he's the shepherd on all of that stuff. And then the other part is we do a lot of very, I would say, uh, among the best news and analysis stuff out there, particularly on politics. Sarah's newsletter, The Sweep, is great. We have Chris Starwalt. Um, oh, someone who some people may have heard of when he was a blogger, Ala Pundit, um, uh, Kevin Williamson, my former colleague from National Review, David French, um, who writes on both all things legal and um, religious as well as politics for us, um, and uh, and quite a few other people, and um, it's going great. You know, I mean, it's hard work. When we were raising money for the thing, people told us, you know, there's going to be a lot of hard work, and we thought we always said, look, we're not afraid of hard work, and now three years in, we're like, damn, this is a lot of hard work. Harder um, than you thought, huh? Yeah, it's uh, it's just day in and day out, but um, yeah. it's going well. We have incredibly loyal, committed um, uh, members and readers, and um, and you know, we are not succumbing to a lot of the the decline the decline in engagement that a lot of um, other sites are. In part, and we don't really care in the way that other sites do because we take. We have no clickbait advertising. We don't do that stuff on the site. We think the user experience is 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 really really important, and that the the ads and advertising and autoplay video and all that kind of stuff just mucks everything up. And also, and in some cases, it encourages sort of clickbait, hot take kind of coverage, and that's the opposite of what we're trying to do. Sarah, you've worked uh, with media on on both sides as a spokesperson, uh, but also um, now as a you know, a host of a, a podcast, uh, writing a newsletter. Uh, you've appeared on Le Legacy Media, worked with Legacy Media. Now you're in this new media world. Um, what have you learned about it? And it, specifically, I wanted to ask on on how you feel some, you know, outlets like the Dispatch can help rebuild trust with the American news consumer. Oh, gosh, that's such a big question. Um, and it's interesting, you know, my political career in campaigns and stuff was it, I've been in sort of every job in politics. Comms kind of came later in a way. Um, so I started on John Cornyn's 2002, his first Senate race, and went to law school at one point. I've been in the legal teams, the political teams. Um, and actually, weirdly, after 2012, I ran election day operations for Mitt Romney and um, ended up coming into the RNC looking to go back into opposition research but they put me as deputy communications director more as a staff management job because, you know, there were like 35 mm. people working there. Um, and then I just, <laughs> this is, I don't know why I'm going off on this tangent, but basically what happened was I was the neighbor of Reince Priebus, who was the uh, chairman <laughs> of the RNC. And he got food poisoning on a Friday night and had uh, Fox and Friends on Saturday morning. And when the car showed up, he was literally vomiting and could not get in the car. And so they told me to get in the car because it was outside and I was his neighbor. <laughs> and so that was my <laughs> first time on TV. <laughs> so what what did you poison Reince with, Sarah? <laughs> I can't. 
be, I just, it was, this was never my dream is sort of the point, (laughs) um, to, to do like TV and stuff. But, um, but I then ended up in more traditional communications world, was on Carly Fiorina's campaign and did a lot more TV during then as sort of a, a surrogate as well for Carly. And so, yeah, I mean, I see a lot of benefits to mainstream media coming from the conservative world, probably more than most, because I I see how hard they try to get things right, how much work goes into the editing process, you know, having two sources, all of these things that I really um, think are important to building that foundation of trust. And so what I love about the dispatch is that it takes sort of the best um, you know, organizational process parts of how you build trust as a media organization. But then I think is really transparent about its priors, if you will. And that I think is a problem with a lot of legacy media organizations is that they have these priors, we all do, but they can't disclose them or they're sort of doing it with a wink and a nod based on just who they think their audience is because now the a commercial side of running a media organization is so different than it was 20 years ago when I was starting out. I mean, it's moved from advertising revenue to subscription revenue. And so that really changes the incentive structure for a lot of these organizations. And we just tell our members that we're like, this is how we make money. (laughs) And here's the tough decisions and here's how we've balanced them. And so here's how we're coming out today. That may change over time. And I just really appreciate when you bring people along with you, because I think that is a way um, that you build trust. So, I mean, that's one part of it. But the other part of it is, um, I think that, you know, Jonah Goldberg and David French and Kevin Williamson and Steve Hayes and these guys are just some of the most interesting people. And I get to spend every day talking to really interesting people. I mean, Jonah, generally speaking, uses about one word a day that I have simply not heard in conversation. Like maybe I've read the word before, but to hear an actual human say it out loud, uh, that's just like the fun of working with Jonah. So that part's Jonah, also what's... just like makes you want to wake up in the morning. Jonah, what's the word of the day? Yeah. <laughs> um, so my favorite, uh, my, I, have a, I have a weird soft spot, which is odd for a guy named Goldberg for German words. And mm. um, <laughs> uh, I, so... Uh, Two of my, um, like we all know schadenfreude, right? But like one of my favorite, one of the great things about German words is that they, um, they reflect the just really sort of bitter crankiness of living in the black, black forest. And so one of my favorite words is futternide, which is a very useful word for anybody who is married because futternide means food jealousy. So like if you go out to dinner and your <laughs> spouse orders better than you, you have futternide. Man, I should have ordered that. And um, and so someone's futternide can give you Schadenfreude. Um, and I just think it's a it's a it's a useful sort of uh, way to think about the world. Jonah, I threw a, a a challenging question at Sarah there. And before we get to what has been a very eventful couple weeks in politics, one more media question for you, just based on the lessons of the dispatch and the origin story, etc. What broke the media? When did you realize that something was broken about? Um, how things were being covered, the lack of self-criticism among conservative press, et cetera. Um, 
how much can be blamed on one individual who sort of came into politics about seven years ago, and what can be blamed on the media writ large and their uh, and what's been going on technologically and within American society over the course of the past few years. Yeah, I mean, I, I should be clear about something. So, I mean, I grew up in um, a media saturated household. My dad ran ran in, uh, news syndicates and was an editor for news syndicates and probably had thousands of reporters that he could assign to things. And and I grew up in a household where we had, I think my dad subscribed to six newspapers at home, seven, and God knows how many magazines. And uh, my mom was a literary agent and all these things. And so I, I grew up saturated in all this stuff. And my dad was a conservative who always used to tell people he grew up behind, he worked behind enemy lines. And one of his great hobbies was complaining about the New York Times. It was the Moriarty to his Sherlock Holmes. He thought it was a worthy adversary. Mm. And I, so I grew up, I imbibed media criticism stuff from a very young age. I think the old the pre-internet, pre-cable news media had problems. Um, you know, the I can give you chapter and verse on how Daniel Shore slandered Barry Goldwater, you know, saying that he was his vacation in Europe was a real effort to link up with neo-Nazis. Um, oh, and, and it's so funny because we have this nostalgia for the Cronkite days, and it's so funny because if you actually look at that survey where he was named the most trusted person in America, there was a marketing survey put together by CBS that was totally slanted towards, you know, like yeah. they, we, we, we hold these things like they're rules of thumb, like, well, in the days of Cronkite, well, they had their own issues back then, yes? Absolutely. And anyway, my only point is, is that I, I, I am not as nostalgic for the old days of, of when literally the most important media organizations in the country that set the tone and tenor for all other coverage were like seven out of 10 of them were within two square miles of each other in midtown Manhattan. Mm -hmm. And there were a lot of problems in those days too. But I think the internet has created all sorts of problems. Cable news has created all sorts of problems for coverage. The balkanization of media generally leads to audience capture where you have to, where you start telling your audience what they want to hear rather than what they need to hear. Um, politics has become sort of a lifestyle thing. And so even the New York Times sometimes ventures into sort of lifestyle brand rather than you know just strict journalism. Um, but the problem on the right, you know, part of it has always been that conservative organizations never emphasized journal, you know, reporting the way a lot of left-wing organizations did and media organizations. And so there's much less of a tradition of it. I mean, there are obviously, there have been some very good right of center reporters here, there, and, and whatnot, but they're, they're largely the exception to the rule. And I love National Review. I, it's still near and dear to me, but it was never like a daily reporting operation kind of thing. And I think the thing that happened to conservative media, and I, I, this is not a criticism of National Review, this is a, a broader critique, um, is that it had so for so long acculturated itself to the idea that it was part of a movement trying to help the Republican Party become conservative and then having conservatives be in power that um, it kind the entire conservative movement with a very few exceptions basically internalized this idea that you needed to be a political consultant for the Republican Party and and then Donald Trump came along and created this profound tension because what was good for Donald Trump wasn't necessarily good for the Republican Party and certainly wasn't necessarily good for conservatism. And 
um, and you saw some websites, some news outlets, quote unquote news outlets, Breitbart comes to mind, that kind of stuff, that just leaned all the way into the cult of personality, the sort of radicalism. Steve Bannon, you know, says he's a Leninist. Um, mm -hmm. and, and that sort of saturated big chunks of conservative media, um, driven in part by Fox News, where I was a contributor for 11 years or so. Um, and, and so a lot of the problems on the right have more to do with the pro a lot of problems with conservative media have more to do with the problems that Trump imposed on conservatism than they have to do with the problems of conservative media. But um, it's in some ways also a chicken or the egg kind of thing. In an environment, a socially social media fueled environment where people get addicted to um, outrage and, you know, like my standard criticism of a lot of irresponsible websites on the right and on the left and social media companies generally is it's um, monetizing dopamine hits. It's mm. aimed at making people really, really angry because that boosts their engagement, that boosts the algorithm to stay immersed in this stuff and it's screwing up a lot of people's heads all right we have a lot more of the conversation to get to but i first wanted to thank our sponsor this week it is bull and branch the sheet and bedding company bull and branch b-o-l-l -L, and branch if you follow me on instagram you might have been part of our viral debate recently over whether to use top sheets or not it was all based on a wall street journal story about gen z and millennials kicking off the top sheet Thousands of you messaged me about your sleeping habits, about what blankets you use, about what bedrooms you use. Actually, you got into many, many details. Either way, Bolin Branch took notice and is very excited to be offering Mo News listeners an incredible deal, 25% off and free shipping for a limited time this week as we head into Black Friday with the promo code MONEWS, M-O-N-E-W-S. You can enter it when you go to bolandbranch.com, B-O-L-L-A-N-D branch.com. My wife, Alex, and I recently got a set that included a whole bunch of pillowcases, Euro shams, the duvet cover, a top sheet, yes, a top sheet, and all of it is a game changer. The sheets keep getting softer after each wash. We are really loving these 100% organic threads, and if you're looking for a gift uh, for a loved one or, frankly, just yourself this holiday season, I highly recommend it. A reminder that we literally spend a third of our lives in bed. So sheets are a really big deal. Bowl and Branch is offering a special early Black Friday deal for Mo News listeners. It's the best deal of the year, 25% off and free shipping when you use the promo code. Everyone wants to get more sleep and there are a ton of different sleep hacks out there. Noise machines, meditation, earplugs, which I do, but you can immediately transform your sleep with Bowl and Branch. We have Bowl and Branch sheets in our house. They're in white they are so soft. In fact, we say all the time, but they really do get softer with every wash. And the sheets also come in a really pretty box, kind of wrapped up like a present just for you. They feel buttery and breathable to start. And again, as Moshe and I always say, they get softer with every wash. Best of all, it feels a little bit luxurious every time you slip into bed. These best-selling sheets are also made with the finest 100% organic cotton. They're completely free from toxins, soft yet super breathable. There's a 30-night worry-free guarantee so you can wash them, style them, and sleep in them for an entire month. And if you don't really love them, you could send them back right away. And again, they're made without toxins. There's no synthetic pesticides, formaldehyde, and other harsh chemicals. So sleep better with the softest, most breathable bedding from Bowl & Branch. Get 15% off your order when you use the promo code MONEWS at bowlandbranch.com. 
That is Bowl and Branch, B-O-L-L-A-N-D, branch.com. That promo code MONEWS, M-O-N-E-W-S, for 15%, 1-5% off your order. MONEWS, M-O-N-E-W-S, over at bowlandbranch.com. That's bowlandbranch, B-O-L-L-A-N-D, branch.com. Promo code MONEWS. The offer ends on November 27th. We're just over, just about two weeks since midterms. Uh, you know, some Republicans are talking about a red wave, guaranteed majorities in, in both houses. What uh, resulted, Democrats have kept the Senate, slim Republican House majority, some infighting among leadership. Uh, you wrote in your newsletter, The Sweep, Democrats didn't exactly win, but Republicans definitely lost. Sarah, what happened? The way that I think about this election is a cross wave, two waves that... Um, in many ways, wipe each other out. So you still have all the historical factors that were favoring Republicans. You had the historical trends. You had the economic indicators, low presidential approval numbers, party out of power. That wave still existed. And it's why you see uh, some of the Republican governors, for instance, doing as well as they did. Ron DeSantis, notwithstanding even, look at DeWine or Kemp, um, Sununu, et cetera, but you had this crosswave coming from the other side, from Democrats and things that were helping them. Certainly, I think it is clear to me now that abortion had more impact on this election than I was expecting. And that I think even uh, many others were expecting. But How did everyone course, miss that? How did everyone miss that? How did we all well, miss that? Um, because I at least thought that A there, we had already sorted ourselves on that issue for 20 years. It had been sort of the chief cultural issue. And so who was left to really move parties over that? And the answer is, by the way, like not to skip ahead to the end of the story here, but we aren't talking about that many people. Um, you know, when we're looking at a cross wave, and let me just finish what else I think was in that democratic wave, which is the candidate quality on the right in some of these races was wanting uh, is a word for it. And then you have the Donald Trump factor, not just, you know, January 6th or threats to democracy, but even operational problems that he caused the Republican Party where their voters now vote on Election Day because he told them the way to stop the steal was to vote as late as you could on Election Day. Well, there's a few problems with that. Of course, there's the very obvious problem in that if you plan to vote at 6 p.m. on Election Day and then you get a flat tire or your kid throws up or whatever else, you just don't end up making it. Or just it. the line is really long, right? Or, yeah, you just, I mean, you just see you the just line, it's super long. Yeah. And you just say, screw Not it. Not worth right? it. Um, two, it limits the reach of your volunteers. You know, with Democrats who have 40%, let's say, of their voters who vote early or by mail, they only have to concentrate their election day efforts on 60% of their voters. Republicans had to use the, you know, roughly same number of volunteers, but for 100%, you know, let's call it 80% of their voters. So their volunteer per election day voter was just a lot lower. And lastly, I think in this where it really hurt Republicans, uh, you know, you go back to 2012, Republicans had a slight edge in mail ballots um, and early voting in general, in part because old people liked to vote by mail and they tended to vote Republican. And so Republicans and Democrats built voter models of what they would need in each precinct in order to win the election. And they would separate that out by absentee ballots and things like that. 
do something called AB chase to get those ballots in, compare them to the voter model. And so you'd really know where you were um, in three weeks out from the election and whether you were underperforming in unexpected places. And it would give you a lot of information. Democrats had that information in spades in 2022. But Republicans did not know they were losing until three hours after the polls closed. It's egregious. And it's all because of that uh, Trump-led change to voting on Election Day just put them at a huge disadvantage. But the point is, at the end of all of this, what you get is a real status quo-looking outcome. But underneath the water, there's all this turbulence that both parties are now trying to deal with what that means moving forward. Yeah, I would I would agree with all of that, I, the only two things I'd add, and I'd be curious if Sarah agrees with me on the first one, which is that I, when you ask why did we miss the abortion thing, I think part of it is, is that even though the polls were generally pretty good this time, um, if you, particularly if you take out the the sort of partisan, um, partisan ones, um, it is very hard to poll young people. Um, and it, isn't, it seems like in college towns, um, young women who were motivated by the abortion issue who might not have normally voted in a normal midterm um, made a difference and that they were kind of invisible to polling because, you know, college kids and right out of college don't necessarily um, uh, make themselves available to, to, to pollsters. So that may be one of the reasons why it polled lower than it showed up in exit polls. Um, mm -hmm. And then more broadly, you know, Nate Cohen, I think, had it right. Um, he made this argument that Nate Cohen of the New York Times that sort of along the lines that Sarah was saying that anywhere where abortion seemed to be truly under threat, abortion rights seemed to be truly under threat, or where election deniers could actually have a really bad impact, Democrats did well. Anywhere where those things really didn't feel like live issues, the red wave manifested itself. Right. I, I, I sit here in Brooklyn, New York, uh, New York State, where the biggest red wave, one of the biggest red waves took place here. That's yeah. right. And that's because no one thought that abortion was going to be banned anytime soon in New York State. Mm -hmm. And the election denial stuff really didn't come up. And so even though Lee Zeldin didn't get across the finish line, he had coattails and Republicans, you know, the only reason why Republicans are going to get control of the House is because they flipped a bunch of seats in New York. And I think that that's the... Um, I think th th that's the sort of the the manifestation of this counterwave that Sarah's talking about insofar as you have a lot of Democrats who want to say it was like a Biden wave. There was no Biden wave. Like these were not, you know, when, when the vast majority of your own voters say they don't want you to run again <laughs> or that they don't approve of your, you know, your presidency, that's not a wave on your behalf. And I saw one exit poll result said that only 19% of voters said they voted they cast their ballots in support of Joe Biden. There are these other things going on. There was an anti-Trump wave. There was an anti-Dobbs wave. Um, there was an anti-weirdo wave. I mean, I think that was the biggest one. Is there's just like, if you were a conserv, if you were a Republican normie, you know, blue blazer, you eat soup in a jack and tie kind of like normie, like you know Mike Dewine. You had a great night. You know, Kristen, you know, great night. Uh, uh, Brian Kemp, really good night. You know, and but if you were one of these weirdos that made people feel unsafe, um, uh, you just you took it in the neck. Speaking of speaking of uh, them, Carrie Lake, uh, Mastriano, Balduch, Tudor Dixon, 
you know, a variety of, of gubernatorial and, and Senate candidates there. What are there lessons for the party? I, I mean, basically, where does that sect of the party now stand post 2022? Is it that they're not strengthened, but they're still going to be there? They're going to be here for the next wave? Like, how, how do you see that playing out over the course of the next couple of years, especially against the backdrop of another Trump one for Trump run for the White House? Good question. Uh, I am loath to make too big a prediction on this because of January 6th, right? In the wake of January 6th, you had a whole bunch of Republicans come out and condemn President Trump for his role in it. And then about a week later, as they looked around, they kind of slowly backed into the bushes, a la the Simpson, you know, meme. Uh, and I think there's a chance this is a slow rolling version of that. I mean, we've always seen this <clears throat> where Republican leaders don't like Donald Trump. I think everyone knows that at this point. Um, and I don't mean they don't like him as a person. I mean, they think he is a drag on the party, but that he has a hold on a large enough part of the party that they also can't lose that either. And so they're just in this tough spot. And so, you know, metaphorically, what you see is they're all like, looking around down the line back and forth to each other and saying like, all right, are we going now? We all got to go together. Okay. Everyone take one step forward. And then they look and see if everyone took one step forward. They're like, okay, let's take another step. Um, and on January 6th, you had a few people run forward thinking this was their moment to show that they were leading, then see that nobody ran with them. And so then they backed up. It feels right, like that was the, uh, that was the Mitch McConnell story, right? With the second impeachment, he was ready. You know, he would have been ready to convict right in the Senate. If yeah. more people had showed up with him? Potentially, you know, like we'll never yeah. know. Um, and Kevin McCarthy initially condemns the whole thing and then flies down to Mar-a-Lago. This time, I think because everyone's moving more slowly, actually, it does have a greater chance of success. They're able to kind of hold each other's hands and all go together. But look, we're just not going to know for a little while because I am very curious of whether the 2024 GOP primary is more like 2008's Democratic primary or more like 2016's Republican primary. In 2008, you had a bunch of Democrats running, John Edwards, a bunch of other randoms, but the whole focus was in Obama versus Clinton. And so everything was seen within that narrative of Obama versus Clinton. If that's what this is between DeSantis and Trump, that's a very different um, outcome for the Republican Party, regardless of who wins, than if it's like 2016, where you have 10 other candidates shooting at DeSantis the whole time because they want it to be their head on head with Trump. And in the meantime, they bring down DeSantis. Nobody gets the head to head with Trump. And then Trump walks away with it. And that's the story of 2016. I just don't think we know yet which story this is. Jonah, what do you make of that? You know, and I, I even throw in another example, which is the Dems in 2020, sort of when they started to get concerned about Bernie Sanders' rise. You saw, I think, in a matter of a few days, a whole bunch of folks get out, endorse Biden, and try to uh, push him over. Um, has the party learned the lessons of 2016 for 2024? Um, and are there any other folks out there? I mean, it, by the way, is DeSantis a guaranteed run? And who else out there uh, could get in that could really, really have an impact? Yeah, I mean, so there's a lot going on in there. Um, yeah. I, I agree with Sarah. It's, it's very, you know, like waiting for the moment that Trump goes away is like waiting for Godot, right? We've just been screwed on this so many times. And um, and so I I just as a matter of a sort of 
epistemological humility. I'm not going to predict that it's more likely than, you know, that he goes away at this point. But I do think, I think Sarah would agree with me, it's more possible than we've seen before. And then there's a difference between likely and possible, right? You're like, it is much easier to see Trump losing his grip, right? He's certainly gone from 800-pound gorilla to at least 700-pound, maybe 600-pound gorilla. Um, it's still a big gorilla, right? But um, um, And you still have this problem. I mean, Sarah's sick of me using this as, as an illustration, but like in game theory, there's this what they call belling the cat problem. It is in the interest of all of the mice that there be a bell on the cat because that way they know when the cat is coming. It is not in the interest of any individual mouse to be the one to put the bell on the cat. And that was what happened in 2016. It was a collective action problem. Everyone sort of thought they would be the last one standing and they weren't going to attack Trump because they wanted his supporters. And then it turned out that just the sticky plurality was all Trump needed and, and he got the nomination. And so uh, there's definitely a danger of that happening again. I mean, and and... Sarah's much more expert on the whether the indictment stuff and all that is is a barrier for him of any real kind or not. Um, that said, I I think it's a lock that DeSantis is going to run. Um, I, I mean, I would bet that way. I don't have any inside information, but it is it is generally understood among most politicians that politics is about moments, and you have to seize your moment when you have it. You can't wait you know, four or eight years. And this really does feel like, or let me put it this way, it would be weird if DeSantis didn't feel like this was his moment. Mm -hmm. And um, that said, I am much less bullish on DeSantis's chances of getting all the way through the primaries. Um, you know, at National Review, I can't tell you how many times I was told that it is obvious and that I'm a fool for not seeing it that Fred Thompson is going to be the next president of the United States. <laughs> I remember um, that, yes. And, or, or Rick Perry, you know, um, and you can go down a long list of these, these things. There are these boomlets. Scott Walker was way ahead forever, and then he just had a bad rollout. Um, you know, Howard Dean was all the way ahead of the polls on the Democratic side forever, and then he had that primal scream loss in, in, in Iowa. Like, it's a scary thing to be uh, given the crown this early, right? I mean, I, I remember exactly. I was assigned I was assigned to a certain campaign in August of 2007 uh, run by Rudy Giuliani. And at the time, I think he was polling at like 45% of the Republican primary voters. Yeah, yeah. And so I think that, you know, DeSantis has, by all accounts, very low EQ. And he doesn't like really hold a, hold a room very well. And that's not been a problem for him so far, but like it might be a problem in Iowa and New Hampshire and he could flame out or not. I am perfectly, as someone who has, has had to retrain his muscle memory to not sort of instinctively just root for Republicans because I'm sort of done with that. Um, uh, but I am still a conservative who wants there to be a healthy conservative party in this country. Um, I'm agnostic about whether, you know, DeSantis is the guy um, but I do think he's obviously preferable to Donald Trump. And I think Democrats and liberals do a huge disservice to themselves and to the country by saying that DeSantis is just a smart version of Donald Trump. He's not. And what you're really, if you're saying that DeSantis is no different than Trump, what you're really saying is that Trump is no different than your basic garden variety Republican. And um, that undermines all of your existential set your hair on fire warnings about how Trump is this unique threat to democracy. 
um, if you're really saying that he's just that the problems are just the Republican Party. And um, so I don't know. I mean, I, 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 I could easily see DeSantis being the instrument of Trump's loss and then some third person comes in or not. But, um, you know, time will tell. Are there, are there any other um, folks here? I mean, we've watched the Mike Pence book tour of the past week. Um, Sarah, any, anybody else out there that you sort of see playing the long game here and, uh, you know, trying to ensure they, they don't rise too early, but could, you know, be giving that speech at the Republican convention in about uh, just over a year and a half? I, certainly the stalking horse <clears throat> from Trump and DeSantis is Glenn Youngkin at this point. Mm-hmm. Uh, he has been taking a lot of donor meetings that I, I think are going very well of um, sort of the old school traditional conservatives who obviously aren't going with Trump. And DeSantis for them, it's not that DeSantis is the same as Donald Trump, but DeSantis has his own not traditional conservative record at this point, especially on um, sort of civil liberty, free speechy stuff in Florida. Uh, and he's, you know, certainly more on the attention grabbing new Republican side of things, the Martha's Vineyard stunt, stuff like that. And so Glenn Youngkin's able to walk in and say, no, I am um, much more in the, whatever you want to call it, Reagan, Bush, Romney model of Republican in terms of beliefs and in terms of how I run as a candidate. Uh, So I don't know that the Republican Party voters are interested in that right now. But if you're asking, you know, if Trump and DeSantis fall into a volcano, um, Mm -hmm. who's sort of putting in the legwork right now of a real campaign operation? Yeah, I'd say it's Glenn Youngkin. But I think it's worth noting that the Republican Party and therefore Republican voters have a real problem after the primary. Because if Donald Trump is the uh, nominee heading into the general election, I think at this point, Republicans see that 2016 was the, you know, one in a million super needle threading electoral count victory, right? He didn't win the popular vote and every election since then has been getting worse. He was the change candidate. He was worth taking a flyer on in 2016. You didn't quite know, but Hillary Clinton was so unpopular that that's what provides that again, just like, (laughs) <laughs> you couldn't you couldn't do it again if you tried Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania by 10 to 30,000 vote um, wins there. So that's a problem in a general election if Trump's the nominee just right off the bat, obviously. But if DeSantis is the nominee or someone not named Donald Trump, even if Donald Trump's esteem with Republican voters has fallen as far as I think it can fall, Donald Trump could run a third party candidate. He's got a, um, there's states that have sore loser laws and there's certainly ballot access issues. And especially for a campaign that's not known for its uh, organization and military-like efficiency, ballot access is going to be hard as a third party candidate. But even if he just sits on the sidelines throwing shots at the Republican nominee, whoever the Republican nominee is, Ron DeSantis or Glenn Youngkin, they're not going to have a margin to lose two to three percent of their general election voters. And so I, I'm I'm not seeing the path for a Republican to win in 2024 if it's Donald Trump or if Donald Trump won't get behind the nominee. And based on what we've seen him just saying about Ron DeSantis and Glenn Youngkin, I don't think he's going to be a 
uh, magnanimous loser getting behind their campaigns. Yeah, and and like even if, and I know that this is a difficult scenario to to imagine. I mean, um, you know, like unicorns pooping marzipan. But let's imagine that Trump is actually a good team player, and um, and supports the nominee, and even does some campaigning for him. Part of the problem is that the new voters that Trump has brought into the Republican coalition are just much less reliable voters, particularly when he's not on the ballot, than the old Republican voters that they've chased out, you know, suburban, college educated, with kids, you know, married couples um, and older folks. You know, they've chased out the college educated vote to the Democrats. And those were among the most reliable voters. Um in favor of the low propensity, low information voters who just may not be interested in turning out. And that's only, and that's even if Trump wanted to play ball. So it, you know, the Republican party has gotten itself into a, a bad cul-de-sac. And, um, as with almost every other election, their, the the rosy scenario depends on Democrats screwing stuff up. So they probably have a pretty good shot. Speaking of which, so elections are a choice. The big question that we're waiting for an answer on is, will Biden run again? Um, what is the sense uh, on, you know, should it be a Biden reelect? He's going to be 82 on Inauguration Day. He's going to have to get through a cycle where he can't, you know, uh, assuming we don't go back to the days of, of 2020 COVID, like he's going to have to be out there. Um, is you know, potentially have to go through debates, et cetera. Um, what is your sense of the Democratic field? Uh, because at the end of the day, regardless of what happens on the Republican side, you know, if voters have, you know, have to make a choice uh, between Biden and their candidate or someone else on the on the Democratic side. Um, how do you kind of lay it? Look at that field right now. It's not as pronounced as the Trump problem on the Republican side, but the Democrats have a Kamala Harris problem on their side, because if Biden doesn't run either. He has to endorse his sitting vice president, who nobody believes has a good shot at winning a general election, or he has to not endorse his sitting vice president, um, which mm. makes it a free for all, certainly on the Democratic side. But more difficultly, it's not going to be well received within the Democratic base that he didn't endorse his vice president, uh, the first black female to hold you know, the highest office um, that any woman has held in the country, you know, to not endorse her also is bad. And so they're really stuck, which is why I think Biden, if at all possible with his health, will run again. And um, we will take this up on the next time Sarah and I do a podcast without you. But I would argue that the Speaker of the House is outranks the vice president um, in our constitutional order. But um, <laughs> that's an argument for another time. Um <laughs> Uh, the, uh, I, I agree. You're that, right, like, I mean, by the I, way, like, Jonah, I actually, I'm willing to concede now without even having the debate. I still want to have the debate, but uh, you're right. You're just not right in terms yeah. of lying to the presidency, but that's not what I said. I said highest ranking and article one always outranks article two. That's right. Uh, All right. Everyone, so, but, uh, I, everyone in a preview of the next, uh, advisory opinions podcast or <laughs> one, one of your podcasts over the dispatch world. Yeah. Um, yeah, the other, um, the I agree with everything that Sarah said. the The thing is, like, first of all, there's there's a problem with the way we talk about Biden now. It's very awkward for people. You don't want to seem ageist. You don't want to like be 
unfair to him because he's more compass mentis than a lot of his detractors on the right claim he is. But he's also showing his age in ways that a lot of people on the left kind of don't want to acknowledge. And the part of the problem is, is that most Americans can see for themselves because they've had members of their own family who, when they reach that age, are just losing a step or two. And, um, and you start doing this projection two, four years out from now, and it just makes people nervous, and I think legitimately so. And then there's this, this added problem is that Joe Biden has always said weird things, right? This is not a product of his age. Yeah. If you, there was, when he was in his 40s, there was a non-trivial chance that in any given moment he would shout, get these squirrels off of me. And, um, and so like, he's always been sort of weird and unpredictable. And I think the old age thing makes it even more scary, but there's also just like, you no know, campaigning is hard on young, young people. Yeah. And you could see him, I mean, heaven forbid, it would be a horrible thing, a horrible image. But I remember, I'm old enough to remember when Bob Dole fell off a platform campaigning in 1996 and it freaked everybody out. Um, he could fall, you know, I mean, old people fall down and there are bad consequences that have with that. And to risk, particularly if you have Donald Trump as the opponent, um, to risk like what you, what the Democrats themselves claim to be an existential threat to democracy on an 82 year old dude who is unpopular with his own party um, is just seems to me a really selfish thing to do. And I would, I would think that somebody around him has figured this out, but you know, who knows? Uh, allegedly, there's a big meetings happening uh, around uh, the holidays, and Jill Biden will be making that call. <laughs> I know my wife would. Yeah. Um, and, and by the way, Jonah, you mentioned that uh, Bob Dole was 73 in 1996. Right. Although he, um, he seemed old. To, you yeah. know, he had that old, because partly because of his war wounds, but still. Jonah, I want to get to Congress real quickly. You wrote in the G-File this week uh, your newsletter about the immense challenges, can we say, for Kevin McCarthy, the man who would like to be the next Speaker of the House and still has to quite get there. Um, he's going to have a very slim majority, probably close to what Pelosi had, but you know, basically no more than four people can be absent or dissent uh, for him to get anything through. Uh, lay out the next couple of years of a Republican House controlling one half of one third of, of our government. Uh, the good, the bad, and the ugly of uh, what what could go down. Well, have you ever seen uh, the movie Caddyshack, where it's Caddy Day at the Bushwood Country Club pool? Um, that's basically what Congress is going to be like. Um, it's going to be total mayhem. Um, I don't think that, um, uh, like, I, th I think the best sort of directionally to understand the dilemma for 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 McCarthy was Thomas Massey's quote right after the election uh, to Politico. Thomas Massey is one of those, you know, he literally has laid out his theory of politics, which is that his voters just want the craziest SOB that they can vote for. And he lives up to that standard. Um, he's a, uh, he's a congressman from Kentucky. Yeah. He's yeah. the one who had that Christmas card where his whole family was armed to the teeth, like the mm. zombie apocalypse. And, um, he said, look, if you're looking for someone who's upset by this slim majority for Republicans, you have to talk to somebody else. I'm really looking forward to being the Matt, the Massey caucus, right? Where like he's going to he wants he thinks he's going to be like Joe Manchin. I think he's going to be like an escape monkey from a cocaine study. 
but it doesn't really matter. The point is, is that such slim margins empowers all sorts of, of hotheads who care more about the performative politics than the substantive politics. That's a good comparison, though. So basically, in the way that Joe Manchin has impacted Senate Democrats these past couple of years as that key vote, people like Thomas Massey, a handful of those types of uh, folks on the far right could do the same thing to the House Republicans. Yeah, except like, like Joe Manchin, you can have your disagreements with him. I certainly do. But like he's kind of a centrist, you know, he's, he's a fetishist of the center and um, and all that kind of stuff. You know, Marjorie Taylor Greene, Matt Gates, those guys are not that. And so the dynamic could be, you know, a lot different. Um, and so, you know, if weirdly, if, you know, if, if they had actually had the, the red wave they wanted and they won by, you know, 20, 30 seats, um, McCarthy would be in a better position to marginalize some of those people. Um, but he can't do that now. And I, it's still very difficult to see how he actually gets the speakership because he needs a full, a full 218 of the House as a whole. Um, and uh, that's, or he needs a majority, like some people cannot show, but so it needs something close to 218. And, um, and so I think like the default, at least for the time being, is, is a lot of this investigation stuff. And I'm kind of an outs, I'm, I'm a, I kind of have a, I'm a, I reject the, the, the standard narratives from both sides of this thing, I think it's perfectly legitimate for Congress to look into the finances of of Hunter Biden and the you know and the and and Biden himself. Um, I thought it was perfectly legitimate for Congress to look into Trump's finances, um, particularly when you look at how what Biden has said doesn't match up with a lot of the reporting. Um, so, like as a as just a sort of basic civics thing, I think you know it's fine to look into this stuff. The problem is is that they are not going to do it. I would guess as a sort of an exercise in good government, it's going to be um, a hot mess, you know, Benghazi on steroids. And, you know, it's going to turn out that it was actually Hunter Biden's laptop that killed Kennedy. I mean, it's going to be that kind of craziness. And um, and it's not just Hunter Biden, right? They're going to go hard on Fauci and COVID. They're going to. Yeah. I mean, going to be and again, but like the, yeah. the Fauci and COVID stuff, again, I think on the merits, it is perfectly legitimate. We had in that uh, pandemic that cost millions of lives and trillions of dollars to the global economy and screwed up this country royally, getting into the origins of COVID is an entirely legitimate oversight function. But not if it's just simply going to be to like put Fauci's head on a pike. Um, and, um, and I think that that's sort of where the Republican animal spirits are going to be. And McCarthy's going to need to feed some of that to hold on to the to the GOP caucus, you can come up with a really fancy, nice alternative universe theory where this would actually empower sort of like the problem solvers caucus to work across party lines and work on things that are generally popular about infrastructure and whatnot. Um, I just don't know that the incentive structure is there for either party to actually make that happen, even though it would obviously be good for the country. Can, can they help themselves? Uh, Sarah, going to 2024 with some of these investigations, but you know, first by drawing questions into Biden's tenure. I mean, one one other thing they'll um, certainly uh, be investigating is Afghanistan and and how that withdrawal turned into the fiasco that it did. Um, or you know, based on some of the characters that uh, Jonah just talked about, you know, is is it pretty guaranteed that there's going to be some overreach and it could you know ultimately uh, 
hurt the party uh, going into the next cycle? I'm just not sure. And Jonah, maybe you have a good example of this. A time when partisan investigations from the House helped the political party that it was trying to help. Maybe there's an argument that Benghazi drove down Hillary's favorables, even though it hurt the Republican Party, too, that it hurt her more. Right. That was Kevin Maybe. McCarthy's argument, right? When Kevin McCarthy was asked on Fox, what, you know, why do we do all this? Why did you do all this with Benghazi? He said, look, they've been successful. Her poll numbers went down. He just openly admitted it was a cynical exercise <laughs> that lower Hillary Clinton's poll numbers. Um, but yeah, I, I, but no, Hillary it's, Clinton it's was also deeply unpopular before that. Now, when she was secretary of state, her popularity rose. But basically, every time Hillary Clinton's been on the you know, ballot, her right. poll numbers went down. You know, in 2008, she was unpopular. Then she becomes Secretary of State. Her popularity increases. Then she runs again. She becomes unpopular. You know, maybe Benghazi drove it down some, but there's also just a whole bunch of other factors. My only point in all that being, um, even if they run it like a relatively tight ship, which I do not think they'll be able to do, right? you know, when you're, when inflation's where it is, crime, immigration, all these things that actually affect people's lives and all the headlines are going to be about some hearing about Hunter Biden. I just don't think that's a great path for any political party that then wants to run the next election about how they're going to fix the economy. Well, which is it? When you're in right. power, you seem not to care that much about the economy. And instead, you're appealing to this very online portion of your base um, shrug, you know. And, and they throw out, by the way, impeachment. I mean, are we living in an era now where every president's going to be impeached at least once by the, uh, if the House is controlled by the other party? Well, and we understand that Donald Trump is pushing, in fact, to make sure that Joe Biden is impeached three times in the next two years because he does not want to be the president with the most number of impeachments, which, <laughs> my God, like that's not how we're measuring success, friend. Yeah, I mean, I, I just keep asking people, what, what are you actually going to impeach Biden for? And you get- Not important, person. Jonah. Not important. Yeah, exactly. You know, and so that's I, I, I'm actually inclined to think that they don't impeach Biden. I mean, clearly there will be people trying to do it. Lots of idiot stuff about introducing articles of impeachment. Um, but I don't think they pass out of the House. And obviously impeachment would die in the Senate. So, I mean, it's just it's just stupid theatrics at this point. Okay, I, I, I want to end here. Uh, we began the conversation with the state of the media, and I, I, I want to end because I, I was struck this week uh, by some of the conservative media, including the Murdoch-owned entities and how they approached uh, the Trump announcement. I'd love your reaction to that and the larger question, which is overall lessons for the media going back to the um, escalator ride in 2015. Uh, I think they have actually learned some lessons. Even Fox turned away from Trump's Mar-a-Lago announcement when it, was when it ventured into Castro territory. Um, um, I think that a lot of the networks have at least internalized the idea that you can't just cover every single rally as if it's huge news just because it gets good ratings. Um, they used to keep the camera on his empty podium for like an hour waiting for him mm -hmm. to show up. It was just all, like $2 billion of free media. I would like to think that at least some of the network executives who, who talk about Trump being a threat to democracy and threat to journalism would not repeat that. That's a pretty easy lesson to learn. Um, and I think, you know, the response from Murdoch world is, you know, been there, done that. And it, the stink of Trump being 
a loser and that Trumpism being a loser at the polls, for all of these pragmatic, fairly cynical, you know, big donors and big business guys, that's very effective to get them to say it's time to move on. And I, I think we're going to continue to see that kind of stuff. Whether it does the trick is another matter. Sarah? I think a problem for the legacy media that hasn't been solved is dealing with the substance of what Trump says. You know, Donald Trump lying today, comma, like <laughs> they haven't quite figured that out. There's still the business incentives to cover Donald Trump. It was still getting a lot of attention the last time, you know, he was in office and the readership is down. The viewership is down. Will it just be too tempting uh, that they'll want to come back to it? And when they do cover him, you know, calling him a liar wasn't very effective for a lot of people. So I don't know that they're not still struggling with some of those issues internally. Sarah Jonah, thank you very much. Uh, to be continued. Great to be here. You bet. I'm so thankful again for that great conversation with Jonah and Sarah. Again, you can listen to Jonah's podcast, The Remnant, or catch Sarah's podcast, Advisory Opinions, both out regularly on whatever app you're listening to us on right now. Don't forget to follow this show, by the way, if you don't already. It'll ensure you don't miss a single episode. Also, if you could, please leave us a review in the App Store and tell your friends about the show. It'll continue to help us grow this show as we head into the holiday season and enter a brand new year. And a reminder to follow me on Instagram at Moshe at MOS. H-E-H for all news coverage 24-7. I will see everyone back here for the next daily edition.